Hello, welcome back to Softcats Explain It podcast series. This is episode nine of season six, and we are spinning towards the end of the year. What a year it's been so far. We've talked about so many subjects on Explain It, and if you love this episode, get yourself subscribed and take a listen to our back catalogue. My name is Dean Gardner, Softcats Technology Director, and we are here to explain it. Every episode, our team of experts are here to talk tech in simple, jargon-free language, and today is no exception. So the key is in the title, and on that note, I will introduce today's topic. I'm open to AI. Yes, we are open to AI, but not in the sense of open AI, who appear to have performed a fire, rehire, and resign strategy in less than a week. We are open to AI in the sense that it's now part of every conversation. But to what degree will we use AI? How will it impact our everyday lives? And what are the risks? And what are the possibilities? To answer those questions and also open to AI is our very own Aaron Spedding, Softcats AI specialist, and two amazing guests from our friends at NVIDIA. Please welcome John Jenner and Ross Verrill. Welcome to each one of you. Thank you for being here today. And the first question to Ross. AI is really not a new thing. It's been around for quite a while. So why has this year specifically been so remarkable in terms of the rise of AI across the globe? I think fundamentally, the, the first thing to come back to is its, its compute power. So uh, I've got some good friends and colleagues who 30 years ago have written papers on creating neural networks and AI, and they, they fundamentally worked, but they didn't have the computing power nor the data sets and everything else to actually do that. And they've now republished those 30 years later, just put through them through the today's supercomputers, and they work and they're accurate and they do the job. What we're seeing this year, though, is a little bit different. This year for me has come about from scale. It's the fact that there is a mass adoption and Historically, it's been one thing at a time, maybe computer vision, medical imaging, self-driving cars. Each one is a a deeply uh, verticalized or specific topic that needs accelerating that, that sees that benefit. But because of that isolation, it took a long time, a lot of energy, a lot of people to actually make the progress. What we've seen that's different this year is the transformer architecture that's come out. ChatGPT, as we call it, the iPhone moment, is where you've had mass adoption of something. And it's not just mass adoption of of one thing. It's one thing that is going to touch and impact pretty much all forms of society. So that mass adoption, the speed of people to actually leverage it, as well as the availability. 30 years ago, when we talked about this, there wasn't the internet as it's today at all. There wasn't smartphones. The ability to take something new and disruptive and get it to 100 million people in a matter of a month is also unprecedented. So frankly, there's a a whirlwind of things coming together that are all supportive. And this is why we're seeing such a a disruptive and uh, yeah, truly impressive year of uh, tech advancements. I love the iPhone moment statement because there was that, you know, people, there's a lot of people don't realize what society was like before mobile devices. And it wasn't that long ago. Do you see the speed of this technology? Now it's in the hands of the the masses and the consumer. Do you think it's going to go as fast as that kind of mobile phone adoption? Yeah, significantly faster. Um, I actually was at a conference yesterday talking about this. And fundamentally, when we call it the iPhone moment, it's really important to think of ChatGPT as iPhone 1. You look how quickly and how far we've come from iPhone 1 and now what every smart device is to us. And it's not just Apple. There are other vendors and everything there. But we use it for everything. You do everything on your phone today. So when you think ChatGPT, it is the first example. The progress and traction we're seeing across 
different startups, open source foundations, trying to make this tech ubiquitously available to everyone. It just means there'll be more traction with people more rapidly doing even more amazing things. And one of the big next steps is not what you think about today, where you ask it to do your homework or, or help draft something you're about to write, or maybe the questions you're asking today, Dean. Um, actually, it's about the fact that when you actually attach these things to different services. So if you imagine it becomes a hub and you have an intelligent way of making a request, it can call to APIs of all of the other services available. Suddenly, almost anything you can imagine is possible. So it's a case of just evaluating what is the really impactful outcome you can achieve and then building back from that. So yeah, I expect the the, the level of adoption and the acceleration of the improvements to actually be 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 exponentially faster. Yeah, I think we're recognizing that ourselves in terms of giving it to the user and it's a learning process, the prompt aspect of it, the questions you're asking of the tools and the information you're getting back. I think it's one of those wow moments. I think when you start using it, it becomes uh, surprisingly helpful to the point where, you know, I'm not here today. This is an AI. Not true. I am here today. And I did write all the questions myself. So I did not even use an AI for that, but I could have. And I have done that previously for other things, but it is that easy, isn't it? As you say, you prompt in, write me some questions on it, on this podcast about this subject, and it will give you a, a, range, a, a range of questions. Um, you don't have to think. It's, it's That's what worries me, I guess. Well, oh, and that's it. And for me, the, the really exciting part is that's still a, a kind of individual consumer-led view of how it can make your day easier. As soon as you look at this from a business level, if you look at a, a business doing hundreds of millions of, of, of business or making things or, or anything, actually, it's completely transformative if you take a, a, a proper full approach to looking strategically at how this disrupts your whole industry. And you look out, if you try and look out two, three years into the future now, it really does bring a whole new uh, imagination to how you might do things better. And fundamentally, that's going to be where everyone goes in future. You're not going to build things with old tech anymore. It just doesn't make sense. New wave of thinking. So, John, let's bring you in at this point. From the outside, it appears that every tech company we've seen recently, they go on stage. It's event season this time of year. They're doing this private AI or building an AI platform or an infrastructure Every single one of these organizations appears to be partnering with NVIDIA. It seems to be NVIDIA, NVIDIA everywhere. So where does NVIDIA see itself, though, across the technology landscape? It's partnering with everybody, and we've seen this, this acceleration. But where does it see itself at the moment in terms of where it's going and, and, and its relevance, I guess? I think both parts of that question can be a little bit answered by what, what's at our core. Our whole ethos is focused on solving the world's biggest challenges because biggest challenges gets the biggest rewards and it also makes a real impact in terms of our everyday lives and the stuff that we're seeing in the world and what people don't see is to, to kind of do that to do the biggest challenges is a very intensive operation very much research and development for our perspective in both the compute and in the software compute is obviously key in terms of you know ross alluded to it this isn't a new thing for us you know the first kind of neural networks, when they were developed over a decade ago, were run on NVIDIA platforms. Since then, we've been building and really kind of fine-tuning the transformer architecture and how these neural networks work um, and how come we've seen these like LLMs grow as large and as powerful as they are. But what people don't so much see is also our platform. That's software. That's the capabilities around acceleration libraries, orchestration, SDKs, and frameworks to accelerate your journey in AI. And that partnership thing for us is 
is big. Yeah, like you say, it, it, it's sometimes a little bit hard to keep up with the newer partnerships, but it, it's amazing for us because we've got the hyperscalers, we've got the solution providers. More importantly, we've got the software guys because they see the capability that our hardware, the platform, utilizing our kind of software and how much kind of benefit they come from it. I work in the partner landscape and it's amazing to see the different types of partners we're working with. NVIDIA have had such a strong relationship in supplying solutions and in IT, but now the relationships we have with IT developers and consultative partnerships, some of the GSIs, the hyperscalers bringing us to market, and all of that comes down to the fact of out of everybody probably in the world globally, we are the bleeding edge of AI. We are the ones that are really behind and powering a lot of it. And that kind of is the reason we're seeing so many of these new partnerships. Fantastic, John. And I think what's really important to understand, and so few people do, is that NVIDIA isn't a chip supplier. We're not a software company. We are actually building an accelerated computing platform. And this is actually fundamentally different. The, the key there is people think of us as gaming company a lot of the time. Gaming was just the first workload. So gaming is a workload, and it's built on top of an accelerated computing platform. And then AI. So we are not just an AI company now. It is the thing that we are known as, but the reason we're seen so prominently in AI is because we are building an accelerated computing platform, and AI is just one of those workloads. I had the call come up yesterday um, about quantum computing, and it still follows the same path. The future will be quantum computing one day, but people today are building hybrid architectures, again, following accelerated computing, and it'll be a mix of accelerators, GPUs, CPUs, and quantum qubits in the future. So I think that's really key. This is why NVIDIA's partnerships are so diverse, because it's not actually us driving that we need to create these partnerships. It's a, a natural effect of us building this computing platform that no one else has attempted before that accelerates workloads. And naturally, it needs a whole diverse group of partners to actually go out and solve problems with it. And, and if you want to listen to a previous episode of Explain It, we have an episode, a couple of episodes ago about quantum. So we can we can li definitely link it to that. So if you want to listen to that episode, you can. Aaron, let's bring you in here. We're talking about partners there. Ross mentioned partners. So where do we play in that equation when it comes to partners? We're seeing it go very busy. We get very busy with our customers over the last few months around this particular stuff. Um, what sort of interests are we seeing? What sort of companies are doing things with AI that you're experiencing? And does what Ross and John has, you know, what they've said there, does it seem to resonate with where customers are going and where we can, you know, we can help, Softcat can help? Absolutely. I, I see our role at the moment as very much advisory and navigating the incredibly broad landscape that is AI. So most customers that we speak to, and obviously I can't paint every customer with this brush, but are more just interested in understanding where these use cases could be and what do we actually mean when we're talking about AI. As we've talked about earlier, it's it's not a particularly new concept. It is in the way that we're using it right now with the sense of generative AI. And ChatGPT has done a fantastic job of, I guess, popularizing usage of generative AI and, and people's interaction with it. But customers are still trying to determine where this fits into their business. Whilst we'd all like to think that in a in a distant future, well, not so distant future, sorry, that we will have an AI first strategy with everything that we approach, no one's quite ready to adopt that just yet and are still determining where it's relevant in their business. So a lot of the work that we're doing is understanding where pieces like NVIDIA Stack and, and, the, and the wider offering from an AI perspective could play a role in organizations where I think it's quite interesting with NVIDIA as a code because as Ross called on earlier, 
people initially just kind of think of you guys as a gaming company and and, and that's it so um understanding and you know seeing where customers could be utilizing this wider stack and sort of almost re-educating in the purpose of building this into their into their business offerings and their strategy is very much where we are i think a lot of customers are at a point as well and calling back on the the use of chat gpt uh there's an increasing concern around the safety and the security that surrounds these things and how we actually, from an end user perspective, make sure that we're not, for example, creating lazy employees who are just leaning on these tools too heavily, pulling information out of it and, uh, and you know, not necessarily using it to make their work more efficient or be more productive, but more just sort of alleviating their workload. And the idea is, is there's no real easy way of navigating this because we aren't in control of all of our end users. But what we can do is enforce, you know, sort of policies and give them the opportunity to educate themselves in a way that it's ingrained in their personal life. So if we take us, for example, our policies on using something like ChatGPT is absolutely well, we want to encourage your usage of it, but just make sure it's not with any company data and not with your company email. Therefore, that becomes an integrated part of my personal life. And I then can learn how to prompt more effectively and get the best things out of these tools, which means that ultimately, when it does become a more ingrained part of our business and our working day, I have a very sort of solid education as to how I can use these tools to benefit me in the working environment. So customers are mostly asking us about you know, what is actually out there at the moment? How do we deal with this case of a new technology emerging and people wanting to get their hands on it, but doing it safely and doing it in a fashion that is actually making them more productive as opposed to making them lazy? And um, what sort of, I guess, policies and procedures are we implementing as an organization ourselves? Customers are always interested to see what we are doing as a, as a leader in the space and as a reseller. And customers are also asking us what we are doing here at SoftCap. So, you know, what policies have we put in place? What's our interaction with AI tools and how that can then help them build out what they're doing internally? So it seems very much like there's a lot of interest and I don't think that interest is going to go away anytime soon. And a lot of the conversations are about navigating that interest and making sure that we're adopting it appropriately as opposed to just putting a solution in because it exists. That's exactly what I think people have moved towards. The big shift going back to this watch change this year is I think now people have seen that this is inevitable. We went from the last couple of years where you would come in and it would be, you will tell me the ROI, where's the TCO, what's the business case, I need you to prove this to me. To now it seems to have turned on its head and people are appreciating that inevitably this is going to be a tool for the future and they, they've removed that and they're looking, so, so how do we best leverage this and what is the timescales? I, I think a key there is it's moving up from a lot of pe times it was in the IT department that people were looking at to work out what this AI thing looks like, whereas now it seems to shift to executives and leaders who are saying, we can't ignore this. This needs to be an executive direction as to how we're going to leverage the technology. But it really isn't a let's go turn the AI on and then it's going to work. As you say, Aaron, there is a lot of time needed to evaluate carefully where this fits in this business and also whether you build or buy. It's the same old question, but for things like um, collaborations we've got with ServiceNow, why would you go and build an AI tool for your business to help your IT support if you can just get someone like ServiceNow who will do it far better than you to, to do that scale? But if it's something intrinsic to your business, if it's uh, something that is a differentiator of you versus your competition, then absolutely people are looking at how do I bring this in-house and make it some, some IP we own and can actually have a differentiator in the market. We're seeing, I think, you know, it's clear we are seeing um, a lot more of those conversations in terms of use cases. But equally, I think we're seeing the rise of um, the choice. You mentioned earlier, I think John mentioned it, the hyperscaler relationship. You know, 
click and turn on has-based services that I'm assuming have AI in them. But equally, we're seeing a lot more organizations looking at the data sovereignty piece to the elements that Aaron was alluding to and, and Ross yourself, where you know people are recognizing that they can do a lot more with the technology in front of that data set that they have that's aligned to their business. But you know, equally, do you want to be exposing that data? You don't particularly want to. So having that on a private AI platform in somewhere that's secure that you're operating and looking after, I guess we're seeing a lot more of that kind of advertisement, I guess, from from other technology providers. And John, do you see that as being maybe a next wave of where organizations are going from a hybrid multi-cloud perspective as an example, or or as a user, a user perspective? Where do you, where do you see the, I suppose, the entry point, I guess, for organizations? Is it platform specific or is it user specific? A lot of our focus is around use case and market. So it depends. You mentioned data there. What is the data that is going to be needed from that training perspective or the RAG process for them to utilize it? And that can kind of be a a decision factor in how they want to consume it, what kind of models, how they want to train it themselves. A big thing that we're seeing is the concept of explainable AI. You need to work with somebody because eventually you're going to get asked questions of how did you come to that generated response? It's never going to be quite perfect because it's that's the beauty of what a large language model can do and it is truly unique every time you get it, but you need explainable. You need to understand how it came across that. What data did it have? How is it trained to do that? Which you'll probably see from a lot of the offerings and the partnerships that we have on these people coming to market with how to do that. That's a really good point. I mean, I've used a technology recently and it produced a fantastic answer for me. And I was like, I'm going to use that. I actually don't know where it got the data from. I actually wasn't clear. So I know, I know we have, you know, things like rights management and we're, we're very secure with our data. Absolutely. But it presented a really good answer to a prompt that, that I put in. And I was thinking, well, actually, it must be pointing to a really good data source that's ours. I don't know where that, I actually don't know. I personally don't know where the data source is. Our, our security governance team do, obviously, and I think that's important. But as a user, does it matter as long as it gives me the answer? I guess yes and no. It, it depends on what answer or what response you need. And, you know, you talk a lot there around the the way that profiles are set up and the access to data that your individual profile has. But how do you architect that if you can't see the direct directly, but it would be beneficial for the LLM to in, you know interact with it and give you a response? It's very kind of nuanced in terms of how it's going to deal with what permissions, what is the explained nature of it, and what is the outcome that you get. It's a complicated one, definitely. I think a lot comes to uh, how you define what you are hoping it's going to do. So there's a lot of uh, discussion there about trustworthy explainability. And I think exactly that can be covered by how was the model trained. And that's typically the foundational model. But when it comes to what kind of answer you want, the, the idea of hallucinations can be good and bad. Because if you're asking it to help you draft a poem or something similar, then you actually want that because you want it to be different. You want the variability. A big, big thing that's happened in the last few months is this this RAG, this retrieval augmented generation. And effectively, it's got really good. And again, this is that exponential improvement. Um, so you point it at repository of documents, and then it has the, the, the natural language interaction, but it will go and grab its answers based on what it can find in your whole SharePoint. And it can tell you which documents it did. So you can not only get a natural language answer to your question, but it can also point to what was the, the document it referenced when it did it. So we've got some things there. One, one other piece that, that links all to this as well is um, when we talk safety security, 
I mentioned earlier about running your business and intellectual property based on something you build and a differentiator. We, we can't ignore the, um, the drama that unfolded with OpenAI recently. And if there were businesses out there that had built their whole business on leveraging that API, that would be a real concern. And it's not to scaremonger, but this is what people are thinking about. There's not only a trust as to how these models were built and a transparency and then a safety and security as to what they kick out and can they be trusted, but also how much are you happy to rely not just on AI, but any third party service? And when do you have that tipping point that you want to take more control and bring this in house? And that is where I think a lot of the decisions need to be made. It's not one thing. You need to look holistically at your AI strategy and decide where you want things on premise, in the cloud, third party services. There's a huge amount to consider. It's not just go click on a openai.com. That was kind of alluding to my last question. The, it's, it's, it's all linked, isn't it? You know, the, the use cases is one thing, but you, it's the platform of which you're putting stuff in is the other and how you're operating it. Yeah. So as a foundation to that, I think something that we, we should all be practicing and sort of speaking to our customers about is ensuring that at the heart of all of this, we've got explicability, transparency, and reliability. Because if we don't have those things, you know, we, we, we may not, to your point initially earlier, Dean, as to whether this matters or not, it might not need to matter to me as an end user, is in that I might not need to provide that information to someone to show that we have an auditable trail as to where we've got that information from. But absolutely, if we want to grow and learn to trust AI and implement it as part of our businesses, we have to be able to prove that. And the only way that we can prove that is by having those three things at the core of this. So explicability, reliability, and transparency are incredibly important when it comes to any conversations around this, because the risk of reputational damage if something goes wrong, is mitigated by building the trust and knowing that these three things sit at the core pillar of everything that we do and the way that we use AI. I think the use case example was a really good conversation because a lot of the use cases I think we discussed now are businesses coming to us with opportunities. They can see the instant reward, but those opportunities might not be mission critical at the moment. We look at Copilot. Dean, I know you've heard a few of your podcasts. You're using it. It's a really good tool. It really increases your productivity. If it wasn't there tomorrow, it's not mission critical at the moment. As these use cases become more mission critical, as the you know, the SLA, if it is an open AI or something like that, really, really do kind of take down parts of your business. If your workforce can be 40% more productive and that AI is really working as it should be at full whack, if it's not there tomorrow or you have an outage, that is a serious thing to consider. Yeah, it's quite a, an interesting point as it kind of develops. And it's a big area for us because enterprise is going to be the next wave. Enterprises and corporates are developing use cases across their business. But so far, this world has been dominated by first movers, AI innovators, and the hyperscalers generating platforms. So a big focus for us is trying to create a software platform that really enables those enterprises. So NVIDIA AI Enterprise ensures that you have SLAs on frameworks, your acceleration libraries, you have the capability to orchestration, job scheduling, and you have a big, nice kind of layer of enterprise support in a typical IT world that gives you some comfort that you're not just going to deploy a, a big old platform that's going to sit in a corner and do its own thing. This is a part of your standard IT estate, and you can rely on it as a mission-critical platform at the same time. I'll give you that pitch, John, because it's a good one. So we'll give you that. So, so to Ross, <laughs> the next question was uh, on that pitch, because it's a fantastic one, and I think it's a right position to, to, to play. What is that next wave of, of innovation? You mentioned NVIDIA have been doing this for years. 
There was papers created many, many moons ago of which have been, you know, resurfaced. You're you're ahead of the game. You're the leaders of the pack in this space. So, so and, and what John's mentioned there is a fantastic suite of stuff that um, absolutely needs to be understood. I think by many organisations, and we've got a duty of care to do that on, on your behalf as well. But what is that next wave of innovation? Where's it going? It's really hard to tell. Fundamentally, I think the 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 wave we're riding right now is the fact that there is mass adoption. I think the next step is going to be the integration and connectivity between these things and other things and embracing the real world. So the bit that I'm actually really excited about is we've talked a lot about large language models and AI, but actually for me, it's uh, autonomous machines. Um, I always like a quote that I've seen, which is effectively everything that will be built in the future will be autonomous. And I think if you step back and you forget all the reasons why we've built things that move today and having drivers, when you think about the future, why would you not have things autonomously be mobile? And traditionally, it's been cost, it's been safety, there's been lots of reasons. But all of those things are starting to go away. So when you think about warehouses, when you think about picking robots, all of these are getting better. And they're getting better for a couple of reasons. One is the the, the cost of the compute. Again, with all of these things, we're just finding that if you've got enough compute, a powerful enough supercomputer, both in data centers for training or at the edge in terms of the, the the intelligence that's making the perception decisions, things get better and they're more capable. Beyond that, we've also got the ability to simulate at scale. So once again, like NVIDIA, this platform company, we're building at data center scale. So things like self-driving cars, one of the biggest autonomous problems and things that lots of companies are working through. Again, we found you need thousands and thousands of GPUs and thousands and thousands of terabytes of data to actually simulate and and do these things safely. All of that innovation, it it comes down to make it easier when you're trying to build things at a smaller scale. So that's the bit I'm really excited about is when you think about how the robots and the intelligence at the edge for actually physically doing things and how that will interact with human language in terms of giving your instruction and democratizing that. No longer is there going to be, I need to know C++ and I need to know the coding languages or how to train a robot. You will just talk to the robot for it to do what you want it to do. So that for me is where the the next wave is coming, the integration between physical things and more complex API-based structures to achieve complex tasks, not individual objectives. That sounds very exciting and Skynet-ish. We'll, we'll, we'll park that, which if you listen to the first episode this year or second episode this year, I think we talked about that. Um, do you think any business that doesn't embrace AI, do you think they'll survive? Do you think they'll fail? I think it's an, an interesting one because it's going to seamlessly integrate into a lot of stuff. I think organizations that have CRM tools that use marketing suites at the moment, AI tools are just going to be brought into those. That, that That's just a progression because these guys need to keep up with their competition and they want to develop their platform to be as good as possible. So people are going to, they're going to see this kind of creep into their everyday life. And it's more around, from an organization perspective, I think more around training those people to use them. It's more around if that tool comes into your CRM suite, make sure there is proper instruction of how to use it and how to get the most out of it. A lot of the research shows that people can potentially be up to 40% more productive if they're using the right tools, even available to us today. Even though we might not have Copilot or a a, a nice fancy LLM built by the business, you know, I I use Bing Enterprise or ChatGPT or Stability on a a daily basis um, because I see that's the way that I can be more productive. And I think we need to make sure that organizations 
tr- you know, train the workforces to, to do that because that's going to get the best results. I think where we're going to see the, the changes between successes and failures when it comes to this, because I think as we all kind of unanimously agree on this call, it is going to become part of our lives. It's going to be those businesses that have made the right considerations, everything that we've kind of spoken about earlier on this call around the trust that they can build into things like this that are going to succeed. They open themselves up for failure if we're not looking for these things and we're not looking after, I guess, you know, anything that could be fed into these tools that ultimately becomes part of our work and you know then pushing back towards you know are we talking about efficiency or effectiveness here because efficiency is just doing what we're doing right now but just doing it a little bit faster but the effectiveness of ai and how much it has an effect effect on the business and how it co- um, operates is really where we're going to see the, the successes. I think that the customers that get a good understanding of how these tools can be used and how they can be used properly are going to succeed and get an advantage over their competitors in the future. Whereas the organizations that perhaps don't invest as much time into looking into those pieces are probably going to fall behind. And I think for me, the big part there is I think you could make a parallel to uh, emails. Like what, how many years ago you could have said, hey, if you don't embrace emails, you're going to fail. I think fundamentally, is there any company out there today that doesn't use emails and has moved on from just a postal system, but they probably still use the the paper post. For me, this is going to be like like John and Aaron, you both said, this is going to be embraced as part of standard IT and service providers will include AI in their solutions and that will naturally happen. I think the thing that no one needs to really run and start worrying about is that if I don't suddenly build an AI strategy that my business is going to fail, um, I don't think that's going to be something that that suddenly happens overnight. But I think people need to have a business looking forward to see where it's going to go. One example is we have a really great partner called DeepL um, in Germany, and they've been doing translation services. They just went public. They got uh, their, their brand new super pod cluster to go into the top 500 supercomputers in the world. 34th, I think it was. But it's a really nice example because if you take a look, they are at the forefront of leveraging AI for translation services. Now, step back and think about someone starting a translation business today or someone trying to source that. Do you go to someone with the the way they did it 10 years ago, where there would be people manually doing translations? Or do you go to the super accurate company that gives you an instant translation into any language you want? There's just no comparison. So I think inevitably, those that embrace AI now, that they they get a strategy right, then there is going to be consolidation where other companies offering similar services, they just won't be able to compete because the quality, the, the ability to provide a solution and the cost is all going to be so much better if you are leveraging this technology once it's ready. The word that I've picked up from everything you've all said today is trust. You know, whether you, when you're implementing this technology, whether it's in a car, translation model, the data that you're providing and giving access to, it's trusting the tool and the thing you're building. If you're building software, John, to your point, you know it's about the data it's leveraging, the thing it's providing, and then having it build trust. It learns, it learns what it's being given access to, but it's that trust piece. Because if the information goes wrong or if the information being served is in- inaccurate, then obviously there's challenges, right? That's, I think that's obvious. So it's how you manage that. And I suppose how you manage the learning process of it because if, if it's accessing data that isn't, isn't right, is inaccurate, then we've got some challenges. At what point do you stop and reevaluate if that does start happening? How do you know if it's happening? So the trust piece surely is the, is the bit that um, you're having to build up constantly through this process. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's a couple of areas of trust that I think is crucial. It actually comes back to those KPIs. It comes back to, you know, this isn't something you just put in and leave. You have to define what the outcome you need to see is. And it's about continually monitoring those KPIs and seeing if things are drifting or if it's not delivering what you wanted. So it's not just put something in and run. It really is important to take a, a strategic approach to what you are deploying as a solution in the business. But one note on trust that I think is really important is going forward, I don't believe people will continue to trust what they see or hear. It will become less about you receiving news or media and you believing that. It's going to be about the source of the, the information. So it's going to become more critical to build a trusted presence, a following, and to have media outlets or whatever it might be that you trust. And then you will trust that they perform the due diligence beforehand for what you then then ingest. Today, I think people are quite happy to look at different things and then you you do a case by case. But I definitely see this in future with the ability to create synthetic data. People are going to be much more interested in trusting the source than it is the content itself. It's a really good point now because I think that the tone and the bias in terms of how these models are operating as well, each individual organization when they're speaking to their, their customers or presenting information typically has a tone or a way that they approach things, the way they kind of support things going on in the world or the way that they take new products to market and i think that's a big part of how the hyperscalers can have to understand because businesses will need that as stuff moves away from just an internal kind of capability and maybe more kind of outfacing and, and customer support and things like that you need to make sure that's spot on because that is the how your company is going to be perceived that is your outgoing message uh, as ross said when they're creating news or they're doing posts so it's a big part of companies need to understand if what's my AI strategy but equally when that AI is operating I want to make sure it has the tone of my business and it's conveying the messages or the real kind of like feeling that my business is and I guess well when we live in a world or we live in a society where no one trusts anything kind of breaks down into silos of those belief systems or people are you know tend to disengage entirely so I think the really interesting part of this entire phenomenon for me is is really where technology and philosophy overlap in that the trial of trust and how we build it and removing that layer of mystery will allow everybody around us and everybody who uses this to believe in the benefits rather than the fear of the unknown and and that's the risk we run if we don't put trust at the heart of all of this so that's why I believe it's incredibly important and on that note because that's, an, that's another episode in itself, I'm sure. Tech and philosophy. <laughs> thank you all for joining us today. And uh, as always, thank you to our audience for listening. Please remember, we like to hear from you. So why don't you leave us a review? It goes a long way to help us make this better for you. We will be back soon with an, another episode of Explain It. So keep listening. Thank you. Thank you.